Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called but of a gun put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, a brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. They were O'Driscoll, Morgan, extra man, it's Fitzgerald, oh Fitzgerald is coming back inside! Leicester have another! Darcy O'Driscoll through the legs, Rob Carney, out to Fitzgerald again, stamped and scored! Hello and welcome to the Left Wing Independent.ie's Rugby Podcast. I'm Will Slattery, delighted to be joined by Luke Fitzgerald. Luke, how are you? Excellent, Will. A bit better recovered than, than last week. A bit of a stomach bug, so sorry I missed you last week. I was actually a bit gutted I missed the wrap-up show after the Six Nations. It was a nice way for Ireland to go out, wasn't it? Yeah, me and Keane, it was kind of a Frost-Nixon-esque kind of tete-a-tete that me and Keane had in your absence. Meeting of but, great uh, rugby minds. Two savants. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, was, yeah, exactly. A nice review of the Six Nations, but it's actually a very exciting time now, the next couple of weeks for, for club rugby as well. You know, lots of exciting games, you know, a few big derbies, then we have the Champions Cup and a lot of uh, good matches to look forward to. But first, before we get into kind of URC news and, and the various talking points, we might touch on the Women's Six Nations game of the weekend, Ireland against Wales. A little later on in the week, just a reminder, we'll have another podcast. Snake Sam will be on with Keane Tracy, plus other guests to discuss the French game this weekend and look back at the Wales game also. But firstly, Luke, I suppose, you know, a disappointing defeat, Greg McWilliams' first game in charge. It was always going to be a tough battle. You know, he's betting in a new style. There's a lot of new players. But still, you know, when you're leading in the second half, but, you know, with 20 minutes to go, you'd like to close it out. But Wales just had too much power in the end. Yeah, look, and I think that's probably down to they're probably a little bit further on the journey, aren't they, Will? Um, you know, in terms of where that team is at and the contracts and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the, what I would say is it was very positive. I think Greg is, is a very exciting young Irish coach. He's kind of cut his teeth abroad. Um, you know, and I think, you know, we, we watch his, his progress and what he can do with this team very closely over the next couple of years. Um, but he seems like an astute addition. He's the kind of guy who'll be able to get everyone working uh, and singing off the same hymn sheet. And I think, um, look, tricky start for him, and he'll be disappointed with that. I'm sure, as you said, with them leading in the second half, they would have expected a bit more. But there was lots of positives. You know, um, my parents were there with my sisters, and they, they really enjoyed it. So there was a great crowd in the RDS, actually. Um, in, in the stand, they were really pleased to see that and felt like they, they both watched, um, I was talking to my father after, and he, he said he really enjoyed it, that the quality of the offloading was, was, was very impressive. Uh, so he says there's a nice game in there, in them. Um, probably got a little bit stuck in the, in, in the mud in terms of the, the set piece. And that's probably what probably told in the end in terms of the scoreline. But um, look, enough green shoots for the team to be positive. I think there was probably a lot of mistakes too, which I think, Look, you can expect with the start of the championship as well. People, you know, there's combinations betting down. Um, and, you know, what, what I would say is, you know, we talk about Wales being a little bit further on in the journey in terms of where they are in, in, on a professional basis. France are a good bit further on than that journey. If they do make those same mistakes against France, it could be an ugly result. So uh, important that they gather around, you know, and, and um, stick tight this week and uh, get a nice, tidy, compact game plan in place. Um uh, and look, really go out and attack that French team. And if they can keep the mistakes to the minimum, you'd, you know, you'd expect a tight game um, because I think they are capable of it. You know, there's lots of quality in, in, in this Irish team, I think. Um, and you can kind of see that from the sevens, like the ability is there, the, the skill is there. 
Um, they just probably need a little bit of time to bet in. And of course, there's been so much, you know, extracurriculars, if you like, in terms of this team over the last year, it was always going to be tricky to hit the ground running with all that going on in the background. So I think we just look for to, to them to settle down. A couple of big performances will be, will be nice to see. We might not get the results this time around. Um, in terms of the six nations, or sorry, in terms of the, the the six nations, but I do think um, you know there's lots to be positive about, and uh, I do hope they go well for, for for the rest of the championship, and particularly this weekend because you know like the English game, it can get pretty ugly against the big two, you know. Yeah, as you said, a massive challenge against France this weekend. Schneid and Keane will be discussing that in more depth later in the week. And a reminder: in the second half of the show, we're going to be joined by Chris Foy from the UK Daily Mail to discuss. All the talking points around Eddie Jones, England, the coaching succession plan, like there's so many options of which way they might go with that. You know, you have people like Rob Baxter and Steve Bortwick, you know, Warren Gatlin, Sean Edwards, who knows who could be involved. And even Eddie Jones's future at the moment, will there be new additions to the coaching staff? So we're going to cover all that in, in the second half of the show. But, but for now, Luke, we might look at the URC, you know, that kick back into gear over the weekend, Leinster playing Connacht, obviously that early right card, Leinster coming out on top. But, but the interesting thing I want to talk to you about, maybe before we even touch on that is, the South African teams, you know, I remember we sat here after the first couple of weeks and we were we were a bit, you know, downbeat about their, you know, what they've added to the competition. But now that they've gone back on home soil, they've only lost one game, Edinburgh beating the Sharks weekend. The Irish teams, Munster lost twice there, Ulster lost the weekend, albeit with a very controversial call. They are starting to very, find their feet. Very controversial. Very, yeah, very <laughs> controversial call. Uh, yeah, very, to say the least. Tom yeah. McFarland, did his interview after the game, he was like, in my mind, we have won the game. <laughs> Which is one way of looking at it. Unfortunately, that doesn't matter. Um, look, yeah, it's great to see, um, you know, a few positive results for them. And actually, they're kind of stacking up in the middle of that table now. You've got fifth, uh, five, six, seven, uh, or sorry, six, seven, eight, and um, we're looking at 12 as well. So they're kind of in the mix now, you know, another couple of weeks, another couple of wins, uh, you know, and all of a sudden they're kind of hanging around. Uh, in the kind of upper echelons of the league. And, and, and that's what we want to see. Like we, look, They do need to improve their away form. I mean, I just think it's just not good for the competition to see like clearly good teams. We can see that from their home performances. Um, but good teams getting getting thumped, you know, and that's not what we were hoping when we added them to the league. There was always going to be a betting in process, of course. Um, and, and look, the, the one thing I would say is the contrast, and you can see in the conditions, Will, the contrast to the rugby we're playing versus the, the, the rugby that they play in and the conditions they play in down there, it is chalk and cheese in terms of the, the, the style of game. Like It's kind of hard to explain to people, like playing on the high veld, for example, uh, playing on really... Yeah, how big a difference does it make, actually? You know, it, massive, it is the big thing. Massive, yeah. Seriously, it's huge. It's, 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 it's absolutely massive. You're, it completely... The difference it makes to you, even fitness-wise, when you come back down from playing it, is unbelievable. It's like you got an extra ten percent in the in the lungs. Um, but going up to play it against a team that are kind of you know used to playing at the altitude is massive, particularly for your pack. I just think you really, it's a massive ask to go and get wins over there. That's why you know touring South Africa and getting you know even international wins over there are, are unbelievably hard. I mean, I think New Zealand have only ever won one Test series over there in '96. I think it is. Um, maybe they won subsequent, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still only one test series win. You know, when you used to play t- uh, three tests, um, really difficult place to go and get a win, as the Lions found out, of course, as well. Against, let's face it, like it's an African team that is good, but not unbelievable either. Uh, that Lions team are very capable of beating them. Um, they're just difficult to play at home, and the, the hard ground. I mean, they always have like rapid wingers that can, like, one bad, one missed tackle, and it's kind of over. Um, you know, they get to choose from some brilliant athletes, obviously, uh, you know, uh, out in Africa, just, you know, absolutely rapid fast. Um, and, and, you know, the big kind of, um, kind of Dutch packs out there that are still have some brilliant athletes, the hard ground, they just, they, they're really difficult to ask to go and get wins out there. And then you combine that with the fitness element that you're just not used to. So it's good to see them getting the wins. Will. Uh, I think it's still a great experience for our teams too. I mean, what it would be nice is probably to see a couple of fans at the games. That's the last little bit that I think we'd, we, we'd like to see. Um, still obviously looking for some buy-in from the local crowds down there in these fixtures. Yeah, they had, uh, to be fair, t- they, had, they had restrictions on their crowds until very recently. So I think it's only now that they've actually, they're actually allowed to get proper fans in. Yeah, but I, yeah, that's, yeah, look, I, that remains to be seen. I still think that they might struggle to get them in um, unless you get kind of a couple of big names going down, like a, Len- a full Leinster, a full Munster um, kind of team going down there. I think it'll be tricky to get to get crowds in there, Will, um, is my sense of it, despite the restrictions. So 
we wait and see on that. They do play in big stadiums, of course, which doesn't help. It's almost almost like an Edinburgh and Murrayfield type scenario. But um, very positive weekend for the championship, in, in, in you know, all in all. And uh, good to see a bit of fight out of the teams. There was a few hard-fought wins there. As you say, the Ulster one probably stands out as being a bit mm, dubious, I'm going to say, in that there was... Well, yeah, uh, like even the, the head of referee... Yeah, the, the head of refereeing for the Pro 14 or the URC has come out subsequently saying the try should have stood. Yeah, like watching the interaction between the TMO and the referee. To be fair to the referee, he was trying to ask the right question. The TMO was just either <laughs> mishearing no, him. And sorry, just... it's, a, it's, a, it's a home win, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. let me stop you there, referee. Uh, no, yeah, it's like, it was just, no it was ma- it's funny. I'm not surprised. Dan McFarlane, to be fair to him, like was trying to bite it. I'd say his tongue just came clean off. He was biting it so much after the game because it was such a frustrating moment for Ulster because like it was a try and the re- the, the TMO well, I think if Munster the- hadn't lost uh, you know the week before I think he might be like if you think of their position in the league I think he might have been a bit bit rattier you know um, look I know he's chasing Leinster hard but I think if they'd fallen that position you're kind of back into the pack where I still think he has a little bit of breathing space there um, so yeah that probably that's probably why he was well I'm not going to say calm but he was probably seething but you know I'd say he was reasonably oh, Look, saying, look, that's probably, yeah, I'm sure he was hurting. I don't even know what I'm going to say, but I, I think he probably wasn't as bad given they were in a good position in the league, you know? To be fair, he said they won the game. So in his mind, he's <laughs> carrying on with a W. Uh, he's uh, a cameraman than me. I probably would have freaked out to be honest if I was a coach. Yeah, it's so uh, disappointing when something like that goes against you. Yeah, it's funny. Like the only game the South African teams have lost in home soil because I was just, you know, watching the Ulster game and then it was such nice weather. Flicked onto the Sharks Edinburgh and it was like a torrential rain. Like it was actually an outrage. It was like the worst weather you get up here ever. So that's the only game they've lost so far on home soil. And as you say, very interesting to see in I think two weeks time or after the Champions Cup back to back Leinster go down there for two weeks, which will be a very interesting test for them to see how they get on against some of the good teams. Um one thing I am interested about now that the South African teams are moving up the table is you know, I think that the season ends with three knockout rounds in a row, quarter semifinals. And if you have South African teams, if they keep climbing, you could have a situation where people have to, like, you know, play a knockout game, then maybe go to South Africa potentially and then come back for another knockout game. You know, you could speak to the travel element of that. Like, how difficult would that be? You know, I know South Africa time zone wise is the same by and large, but even the long haul flight, would that be massive disruption if you had to come back from that and then go straight into another knockout game, say, in, in Ireland? Like, and look, it's probably not ideal, but I think you could probably, um, I think you, you could get up for a game like that, Will. You know, when you're in that kind of, the, the last kind of part of the season, it's probably a little bit easier. Um, I do think it'll bring, I, I think it'll bring in new crowds to, to watch it, even here, because I think going down, it would capture the imagination for me. Anyway, I'd love to see one of our teams going down there and kind of seeing how you get on on the, on the hard grounds, um, you know, when it really counts in a knockout match. Um you know, those, some of those games, you think back on some of the brilliant tri, you know, Tri-Nations games between New Zealand and South Africa and how open the games are, kind of how high-scoring high they are. Um, it would make for a great watch. You know, I know the weather gets pretty good up here towards the end of the season anyway, and you might say, well, maybe there's not much of a difference. But I still think it would be, be great to see, um, you know, one or two of them definitely sneak into the, the, the qualification stages. And it would, it would throw up a little bit of a, a real challenge to, to, to some of our teams to go down there and try and get a win. Yeah, to be fair, like now that you're looking at some of their team sheets, like as I said, I watched uh, that Sharks game over the weekend. Like you have like people playing like Mipimpi, Khaleesi, Lucano Am, like guys who were serious contributors to that Springboks team over the summer. Like they're, they're kind of finally being filtered back in a bit more into these uh, provincial sides. So, when, or, you know, their their franchises. So, as you say, if, if they get into knockout games, and it's worth mentioning that they, they, they can qualify for Europe next year as well. So, you know... It, I actually don't know how that'll work in Europe next year too with the traveling, but you know, we'll leave that. <laughs> maybe. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. No, but look, we're not open the kind of worms, but it, 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 it's nice to see them. They're finally getting their strong players back into their team and playing at home against some of the bigger teams like the Munsters and the Ulsters. And now, you know, in a few weeks, the Lancers. I think so. And like, I think it'll be exciting to see, um, you know, if they can bring back a few more. Um, like, I think that's the, that's the next step in the journey for them is whether they can attract, attract a few people back to South Africa to actually play in the league. Um, look, France just provides it's such, and France and Japan are just paying so well, um, you know. And you bring back that kind of cash and convert it into your your rand, um, you know. You're you're sitting pretty pretty, or sorry, pretty well, um, you know. After a couple of years up in Europe or in Japan uh, financially, so it's very difficult to to kind of get people back into the setup. But if you could, it would really make this competition, I, I think, 
um, it would really hot up this competition and make it really, really interesting to see how, um, you know, our teams would get on against, this, you know, Freddie stacks at African teams with South African internationals playing on a regular basis. You, you would love to see it because you said some of those names you called out, some special players there. Um, so to have them on show and playing against our top players would be great to see. Yeah, it is a pity that obviously with the way COVID shook out this year, it was still pretty disruptive in South Africa and, and also up here as well. But hopefully next year, fingers crossed, that we get like an uninterrupted season and we can actually see how this league can can go from a week-to-week basis you know, right from the start with no disruption, no closed doors, no South African teams only being able to play themselves in South Africa. So that's one thing that hopefully we will get to see next year. One thing I would like to ask you about... Uh, some transfer news or you know some transfer speculation that Leinster might be signing former All Black centre Charlie uh, Natai from Leon in the centre. Uh, you know, obviously it's a couple of players leaving Leinster at the end of the season. Rory O'Loughlin is one of them. David Hawkshaw, another who played against Connacht and played very well against Connacht at the weekend yeah, off the bench. You know what? What did you make of, of what would you make of this overseas signing if it does come come to pass? Yeah, look, I just don't, I don't think Lancer need to do it, you know. Um, I think the challenge for them now, though, and one thing I probably hadn't considered in this that's probably driving it is, if you're a homegrown player, they always just stayed with Leinster for, for years and years, like really, really good quality second and kind of even, you might even say third string teams, like really high quality. There was games for them in the league with the shortened amount of games. I think if you were looking at those things, and obviously a few people are, they're kind of saying, hmm. It's actually not, excuse me, there's not actually that many chances for me to impress the coaches to get in and, you know, to get in amongst the, the, the selection process for, for the big games in, in, the, in the club. Um, so I think I'm going to have to leave. And it looks like that's what's happening a bit, you know. So look, that's probably what's, what, why they're looking. Um, but to me, it doesn't really make any sense. Like, I just think Leinster looks so stacked all over the place and they seem to have people coming through nonstop. I just can't see why they wouldn't you know, look to, to one of the younger guys to try and develop them with, especially a brilliant coaching staff that they have. Um, you know, and in terms of the center slots, like they look like they do have bodies there. Like, uh, you know, you look at Frawley, I mean, how does he stay happy? But he looks like he's staying on. You've got Harry Byrne, who's going to want rugby. You've got Ross Byrne, who's going to want rugby. Like all these guys are hanging around. Um, obviously, Ringrose and Henshaw are, are, are the kind of leading lights in that position. And yes, you do miss, you will miss uh, O'Loughlin because he's so, ver- um, you know, versatile. I just feel like there's lots of quality there already. Uh, I, that, that doesn't really make sense to me, you know, getting someone else in. But look, um, I think they are looking at a bit of an exit, as I think they're calling it at this stage. Um, certainly a lot of players leaving that I think in previous years had stayed well. And maybe they're getting a little bit panicked and saying, well, look, we need someone who's definitely going to be here. Someone with a bit of big game experience who, who, who you know, we might even use in, in some of the big Heineken Cup games. Um but I think you know my position on this stuff. I don't really like it. I, I just feel like Leinster particularly have so much homegrown talent that I'd like to see them, you know, take a risk on some of them. I think Leinster are, are in a position to take a risk because I think their pack is so strong that they'll always be, you know, very, very competitive in the top games. And they'll pro- provide a good platform for young players that they won't get completely, you know, exposed in a big game. And you'll be like likely next to very experienced players either side of you in, in Leinster, you know, so... Um, just talking about that 12 slot anyway, but I think you're across the board. So, yeah, no, it's, it's uh, interesting to watch that space, and I, I kind of hope they don't do it, to be honest with you. Yeah, because it is interesting because, you know, you just look at players and where they come in and what position they play. Like someone like Michael Alatoa, who came in over the summer, like obviously he's played a lot of game time for Leinster since he came in. He's been very good. You know, they shifted Porter over, so there was maybe a little bit of room for, a, you know, a backup tight at the tight furlong. I think a signing like that is under is, is understandable and okay. You just don't want them to come in in a position where they are going to be blocking a good young player. It, you know, it, obviously for but, like the... Would you like to see them use, say, say for example, you got if in that tight end position, like what about Vak Abeladze? You know, like he looks like a very promising player. Yeah. You know... He was coming uh, off a long-term injury as well, like, you know, so it, no. to be fair, like he hadn't played a lot, like, and Thomas Clarkson's still very young. Like, they were looking for a Champions Cup level tight end prop, you know, to, to, to sub behind Tyke Furlong. You know... I, I don't have a huge problem with that one personally. There's other maybe ones. Not tight like, head. You know, tight head's so crucial. Maybe maybe I may I okay, maybe I get the point on the tight head thing, but um yeah, I don't know. Like uh, yeah, I just I'm I'm uncomfortable. Like the Jenkins thing does not sit well with me whatsoever. Yeah. That really uh grinds my uh, yeah. Uh, look he might well, especially because like you know, Jay, Jason Jenkins coming in. Yeah, he's been injured for all season basically, but like you know, he's coming in a second row. 
you know, obviously Devin Toner is retiring, so there's a slot there. But you still have like, you know, Bear, James Ryan, Ross Maloney, Joe McCarthy, who's been playing very looks well. Very getting a lot looks of, like a nice size of a guy. He looks like a good actor. Exactly, getting a lot of publicity as well. well. Like, so, he? you know. Like, the, he looks like a raw player to me, Will. Do, do you think that looking at him going, right, he's a guy who needs lots of games. He needs to sit in next to a Baird is further on down the journey, etc. You know, but he, you know, a few of those guys are kind of saying to yourself, mm, he looks like he could be an absolute player. But even Dunn leaving, like Dunn leaving and Jenkins coming in, like that is, that's not right. Is it? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just, oh, I feel like a broken record going on about this stuff, but that just feels wrong to me. Like he's going over to a brilliant club and Exeter, I think is the talk, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Like that doesn't feel right. If he's good enough for Exeter, surely he's good enough for, for Leinster, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. Like he wasn't really getting yeah a, another another guy who was in, you know impacted by long term injuries and and didn't really get that you know good run of health as well you know as as the opportunities. But you know if, for him you know if he's not going to get good opportunities you know he probably would prefer to go to Exeter. Oh, for look, I I've thought that about a lot. You know my view on that. I, I like yeah. it's a real thing. It's a, it's a real conundrum for Leinster. Like as a like when I'm being like like unbiased i think there's loads of people from an irish perspective that have unbelievable potential that just sit on the bench there uh, or or sit in the in the in the in the weight room you know and play five six games a year and that's a problem you know but then the other part of me is if if, if i like of course i'm a leinster supporter like you know when i ha- haven't got my my media hat on and i'm kind of saying well like the club will be damaged with all these guys leaving you know how, how do you bridge that gap is it right to bring in players or do they stop the young guys coming through and if you like, I'm sure the people who are looking and making those decisions are saying, well, look, he's injury prone. We can't rely on him yet. He's still very raw. You know, do we impact the other 13 or 14 guys on the pitch? Um, you know, and basically the club's performance, taking a chance on someone in a key position. Personally, I'd, I, I would I would give the coach the, the, the leeway. But then again, I have no skin in the game and this is not my job, you know, so it's easy for me to say, you know, as a supporter and as an idealist. But um in terms of what I'd like from, from Leinster and Irish rugby perspective, but I suppose people are making decisions about jobs. Um, it's probably, they, they probably see the world in a different light, you know? Yeah. It'd be very interesting to see if that signing is confirmed over the next couple of weeks or, mm. or if they go a different way. But for now, we're going to turn our attention to all things England and Eddie Jones. We're delighted to have Chris Foy from the UK Daily Mail on with us. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Good. How are you? Very good, thanks. I really appreciate you joining us this week. It's such an interesting time in English rugby. You know, we had a review of the Six Nations last week. We touched on Andy Jones and the English situation, but it's definitely worth, I think, a, a more in-depth deep dive. I'm sure you're definitely the man to, to go to. You know, I, there's even been a bit of updates since last week. Bill Sweeney talking about the succession plan or, or you know, things around that. You know, what's the lay of the land at the moment? You know, the dust has settled in the Six Nations. People obviously aren't happy for the most part with how Eddie Jones is performing. Is his position secure? It is secure. I mean, this is the thing. There, there was a huge amount of noise after the end of the championship, as there was last year. Uh, lots of uh, lots of chat in the media, lots of chat in public sort of uh, fan circles about future of the regime, Eddie Jones, where do they go from here? But the fact of the matter is, the RFU were pretty sure of their position. They decided they're backing him, and in their minds, they're they're backing him through the World Cup. I can't really see a scenario now where that changes. I mean, they've they've had a couple of serious bumps in the road and they, they've decided basically they're buying into this idea that he can get England ready to be serious World Cup contenders again, as they were last time, that he is a man who can get them into a training camp, spend months getting them into shape, getting them ready, getting them playing the way he wants them to play and that they can be a threat when it matters. And frankly, the way it comes across is it's, all eggs in the basket of the World Cup. They, they sort of deny that, but that's certainly the impression that's been given. Yeah, Luke, we, we, you were around last week, so we didn't get a chance to ask you your thoughts on how, you know, you felt he performed in the Six Nations. Obviously, two wins from five for the second straight year on paper, very, very poor. But, you know, in terms of his performance, it's the team to decide for a second, how did you think he performed over the course of the championship? Yeah, I thought he was poor, you know. I think England looked like a team that are... Um... Uh, you know, you've heard me say it quite a few times when we were discussing them during the championship. Struggling for a bit of strategy, I think, and lots of areas of the game. Um, didn't look like a clear thinking uh, team to me. Uh, I think that was fairly evident in the try scoring stakes. You know, couldn't really break teams down, didn't have much fluency. Um, that's a big change they're making at, at out half. And, uh, you know, even at times, you know, 
he didn't stick with that. Like he was a bit flip floppy even with that decision. Um, the Scotland game probably comes to mind when when I think back on that. I mean, when Marcus Smith goes off the pitch, England are winning. Um, now I still don't think they they attacked well with him, and they haven't figured out how to utilize him best. I think at this point, at this juncture, I, I don't see that being a problem for them going forward. I do think what was very evident to me over the championship was that two lag. He plays a massive part in that back line. He's a game changer, you know, um, and completely changes the, the, the dynamics of that center partnership. They become pretty formidable if he's there with Slade. The issue was whether he's going to be able to make it fitness wise and whether he can get through something like a world cup. Um, but let's go back to Eddie Jones. Look, I think um, if you look at the strategy and you try and look at things to explain how they've gotten to this point, um, I think it's a big, big issue that he doesn't seem to be able to retain staff for whatever reason that is. It seems to me that it's probably a combination of a few factors. It looks like there's a few people, you know, a few good jobs came up. The Borthwick one probably looks like, you know, that Leicester job was, you know, it's a great club and he's obviously done brilliant work up there. Um, but there's other ones that seem to be, you know, issues around working with him. Now that that's a problem going forward, no matter who you are. You know, if you can't keep people in a job longer than two years, very hard for the team to really grow together. It's okay if you lose one or two personnel, because that can be good. But if you're losing a lot of personnel, it's big turnover. It was no surprise to me that they, they kind of look like a team that's flip-flopping between strategies and haven't really discovered a way to play or figured out, a, you know, the best way for them to play. So that's pretty my take on that. I think it's probably, you know, is it late in the cycle to make a change? A couple of schools of thought on that. I mean, Razi Erasmus did a pretty good job for South Africa the last time around. That's obviously, that's the obvious example you'd cite. But I think on the balance of probabilities, you'd still rather have someone there with a bit of tenure. Uh, and that's probably how I would lean. So I think they might be stuck with him. I still think he's an excellent coach, but it looks to me like his abrasive style, it doesn't, it's not just with the media. I think it actually extends to his own staff um, and doesn't really lend itself to any kind of longevity. Um, and I think that might be a problem for him. And the team. Yeah, Chris, just on the, the thing about the assistant coaches, it's something we've discussed a lot. I'd be interested to get your take as someone who's on the ground there and, and has been interacting with assistant coaches throughout his tenure and Eddie Jones himself, especially when I saw last week maybe a report that, you know, they might even consider bringing in the next head coach onto his staff, you know, before the World Cup and letting the head coach bet in with him, which I don't know how that would work with Eddie Jones. You know, a Rob Baxter or even Bortwick coming back, couldn't see that happening either. But, you know... How does he mesh with his assistants? Is it as bad as, as we've been led to believe over here? It's it's really sort of hyper-intense and uncomfortable, I think. I mean, the bottom line is with England in terms of the the hierarchy, it's Eddie Jones and then a gap. And then his assistants are, are sort of very much down below him, sort of feeding up to everything he decides and everything he sets the tone for. And he runs a really sort of tough environment, very uncompromising. There's messages going around early in the morning, constantly challenging people. You know, time off work isn't necessarily encouraged. It, it just seems very, very full on. And certain people, I mean, the, you, you were talking there about Steve Borthwick. I'd say Steve Borthwick is the one person who has just absorbed, because of his character, the nature of him, how, how he operates. He just was able to absorb what Eddie was like as a, as a head coach and just deal with that and he would just keep his head down and keep churning away and he sort of worked within that environment and managed to do it and I think frankly he's gone off to Leicester to get another sort of uh, element to his repertoire and he will be very very strongly pushed to be the man to take over he would be the man Eddie Jones will probably push forward he would just be seeing that he's adding a few uh, additional details in terms of being the, the person in charge and Leicester's a big club Leicester's the sort of the heavyweight club in England. So if he can run Leicester and be potentially a title-winning head coach who's taken them from a very low base up to the heights again, then that will tick that box and they will believe that he has all the other credentials. And crucially, what you're saying is that he could come back in to that England setup under Eddie Jones and be familiar with it and settle into it and add value to it in the short term to go to a World Cup and then be ready to take over. Whereas... Personally, I can't see how many other people would be able to fulfill that brief. If that is what they do, which is not set in stone, but that's been their, as they put it, that's their preference to appoint someone up front and then let them sort of have their feet under the table at the next World Cup ready to take over. If that's what they want to do and that's what they decide to go ahead with, Steve Borthwick seems like the man to do that. Because otherwise it is... 
Uh, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine someone like a Rob Baxter, who is Lord Master of all he surveys in in Devon, sort of coming in and you know being able to handle being in a very different role in that environment than the way Eddie Jones is as a very full on, very driven, very intense sort of character. And and that has led to all that that sort of burn through of staff that you've just been talking about. Yeah, look, just in terms of the head coach, assistant coach interaction, I'd be interested to get your take on, you know, you obviously played under Joe Schmidt for a number of years, a different personality to Eddie Jones, but known to be very, you know, intense himself when it comes to rugby matters. Like when you were observing him and assistant coaches, what did you pick up? What did you glean, like in terms of his relationship with his assistant coaches when you were at Leinster and when you were at Ireland? Uh, I, do you know what? It's funny. It's, it's the, it was just because I was wondering, I was thinking as we were talking and I was saying, that's the example I'm going to use. But I was probably going to make the point that it's probably a little bit more polished than than Eddie Jones. Eddie Jones seems a little bit more, what's a nice way of putting it, robust in maybe how he delivers messages. But Joe was really, really demanding. Um, the one thing I would say in Joe's favor is that there was a lot of coaches there with great tenure, um, stayed with him a long time. And I feel like if I if you were asking me personally, like I just think so highly of him, even though look, there's challenges with Joe because he's so intense, like he is very intense. Um but I felt like it was, he just was so, so good. Like he, I felt like every day was a learning day and I'd imagine it was probably tiring for the coaches, but I would feel like if you were, if you were coached by him, um, you know, fairly directly as a coach and he would be doing that, make no mistake. And it sounds like Eddie Jones might be doing something similar and you would be feeding into his ideas about how the team should play in pretty much all respects. Um, you'd want to be thinking that this is going to be benefiting your career long term um because it would have been a difficult place to work i think um because he would be challenging you a lot but i feel like you would be getting so many good ideas like i every time i went to a meeting with him i was thinking geez like that was he articulated that so well and i just agree like i didn't agree with everything but i agree with so much of what he said there like all of the little details in it like watching him do a video session i just wish analysts like us now if you could just sit and watch them, like, cause I, I saw some brilliant coaches. Like I, you know, I, I, I really did see some really, really top quality coaches in my time um, play, playing professional rugby. I, I do feel I'm qualified to say that Gatlin, your Edwards, all these guys, Cheka, brilliant. Um, even Matt O'Connor was very interesting as well, but um, Joe Schmidt is head and shoulders above as a video session. Watching him dissect a video is pretty special. Uh, it gives you a brilliant understanding of how you really should be looking at w- and what the real key drivers are to being successful at rugby. So I think he was brilliant at that. And I would feel like he got great learning out of it. And I'd say he probably would be a little bit more polished about how he might deal with you. It sounds like Eddie Jones is a bit more abrasive on that front. So he might be able to keep you sweeter for longer. Um, even though he, it sounds like Eddie Jones is the kind of guy you would be learning off every day as well. So um that's my impression of him when I watch his teams and when I hear him talking about rugby. Um, but I'd imagine and when you're sorry, when you hear the players that, that have worked under him, he seems like a really, really good coach. If he, you know, and he seems to be able to get the best out of people and players, but it is a, a difficult environment to work under. So I think it's probably time for him. Like the, the challenge for him is that he's so experienced at this stage is whether he, whether he can look at the facts like a, re- a really great coach now can say, do you know what? There's been a lot of turnover in staff here. I-, I think I do need to can, you know, have a look at myself here and see what I'm doing to, to, to drive this because it's impacting the team. I-, I think it's definitely something that you could point to that's impacted the team. Um, so it's whether he can do that now with a coaching staff um, you know, and get the best out of them before the World Cup because he needs the guys to stick around. And actually, you need them to also enjoy it. I do feel like you know, the World Cup is a very long time to be in camp. People need to be enjoying it and, and enjoying the experience and learning every day and enjoying each other's company. You can still do that and be very, very tough um, on people and demand very high standards. And I think you'll get it because when you go into an international setup, it's not just players that want to give, uh, give it their all. Like coaches and backroom staff and you know, physio, everyone you know, is working towards the same goal and have, feels massive pride in international setups has been my experience. Um, so people want to be there. Um, you just don't want to be the reason that makes it makes it not enjoyable for them. I'll just come. I'll just come in on what Luke was saying there about about sort of uh, the, the players' attitude to the setup as well. I mean, the, the the one thing we keep sort of wrestling with conflicting evidence, if you like, because on the one hand, England's results have been poor this year in the Six Nations. Poor three defeats is not good enough. Three defeats last year, fifth place is not good enough. They've put their hands up. They know that, but then. 
You look at some of the detail, you look at that Ireland game, England down 14 men for 78 minutes. And I take at face value what they said after that. You don't play like that and come out with that amount of spirit and defiance and unity. And you can just see it, eyes bulging passion to fight for each other if there's something a bit rotten in there. Yeah, I mean, Luke, I'm, I'm sure we'll back this up, that the, the sort of spirit in that sort of situation, backs to the wall, just fighting like crazy to stay in the game, to me sums up that there is something good in there. There, there is a good fundamental spirit amongst those players. And also, you get a lot of the senior players, we will ask them about Eddie Jones, and we sort of like to think we know what a, a, a trotted out stock answer looks like and what a real fundamentally sort of heartfelt answer looks like. And you get some of these guys, Kyle Sinclair, Courtney Laws, Jamie George, Mario Toji, will sort of, you know, swear an oath to Eddie Jones about what he what he means to them, what he's done for their career. And, and honestly, if they were sat here now talking to you and you could see them giving that answer, you would sort of believe it. It comes across that he is genuine. And some of those guys, you've seen them add layers to their game. You've seen them flourish individually. And I sort of get it. I do buy it. So there's sort of conflicting information. There's some of it looks like good collective spirit and unity producing performances in certain situations together when they're prodded into a corner and then individual players thriving. But at the moment, the overall vision of it, if you like, the, 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 the sort of progress graph for the, the whole team together is all over the place. There's none of that. There's none of that upward progression which, frankly, there was in the autumn when they started on with this sort of, in inverted commas, New England uh, vision of we're going to change the team, we're going to change the way we play, and we're going to go to places we've never been before in terms of how we play. There were signs of promise. They beat South Africa, and they beat them playing really well, fought well, they were up against it, they found a way to win with clever play, with good tries, young players coming to the fore, and you thought, oh, they're onto something here. It's very positive. And then it's flatlined and gone down in the Six Nations. So you can only go on the recent evidence. And the recent evidence of the, the, the outcome of these things is not good. But the, the, the small detail within it, in some cases, is good. So it's, it's very confusing. Hmm. One person I'd like to ask you about, Chris, and I was reading one of your articles, I think from last week or earlier this week, and it was about Sean Edwards and the role he might end up playing ultimately when the coaching staff is changed. But you know, how frustrating do England fans find it to have an English man in France, you know, a massive galvanizing figure there, like the same he was in Wales. Like, you know, he first went to Wasps almost 20 years ago. So he's been winning trophies consistently in England and Europe for, for that length of time. He's never been in an England setup. Like it must be maddening for, for some England fans that they have such a quality coach who's never actually been in with the national team. Yeah, it's bonkers. I mean, I don't know if someone's got a bet in the RFU about how long they can leave it before they sign him or something. I'm, I'm not sure if there's something going on we don't know about. Um, in the end, the bloke wins trophies in his sleep. He, he's, he, he's the most decorated uh, coach across two codes or coach and player across two codes. He's astonishing. I mean, I, I did a, a, an interview with Sean Edwards, with Danny Cipriani with me, who uh, uh, writes columns for us. And we, we did a, a call with Sean Edwards. And it was fascinating hearing the two of them talking, having worked together at Wasps and kept in touch. And they're very close ever since. Um and, and Danny Cipriani just could not have said more about the guy and just about how he just kept making the point. It's not about just he's the best defence coach there is, which he is, um, and all the all the medals he's got and all the titles he's he's sort of been part of. But he just said he just gets people. He's just instinctively got away with people. You know, and, and again, I'm sure Luke would have some insight to this. He, he just has a way of connecting with people in whatever way they need him to. And he was giving examples of how he operated with the Welsh players and how he's operated very differently and had a different approach with the French players. And Danny Cipriani's take was he just comes in and he reads the room. That, that was his phrase. He reads the room, sees what it needs and goes about it from there. And he always finds the right way to connect with people and just get them playing together. And rugby, fundamentally, it, it's not complex sometimes. You, you get a team together, get them tight and get them fighting for each other. And that's half the battle, isn't it? And he just has a way of doing that. And I think every England fan would they, they do crowdfunding. They'd do anything. Just get him in. They'd find a way. You know, I mean, I, 
I cannot believe they wouldn't make it their number one priority. We saw Bill Sweeney last week, and I actually threw in a question about Sean Edwards' last question before we finished our interview. And I just said, if you're talking about succession planning, surely that's your number one objective. You don't. No one has to be accused of tapping up. You don't have to go and try and prize him away from France now, but make it absolutely clear when he's in London next month, come and see him and say, right, we want you after that World Cup. What's it going to take? And I think Sean Edwards is someone who he wants to feel valued. And Wales tried to fob him off with a half-hearted offer when Wayne Pivak took over. He had a four-year offer and he was made to feel prized by France and he went to France. And uh, I would imagine, as a proud Englishman, if the RFU came to him and said, you are the person we want above all others and we will pay you well and we will treat you well and we want you on a proper contract, I'm sure that would work. And they should. He's, he's, he's an astonishing coach. Is there any danger that, like, you know, they've, they've kind of spurned him so many times that he'd just be like, you know, F off, I'm happy in France or I'm happy here, I'm happy there, but, like, you've had your chance with me and I, I don't want to work with you? I mean, I guess I, I, I simply don't, I don't know the answer. My my sense is that there's not any of that in the background. I don't feel that he's got a <clears throat> he's got a sort of nagging issue with the English game with the RFU. I mean, the hierarchy keeps changing. The the people involved are, are different along the way, and different people have not quite come through with an offer. So I don't think there's any sort of one figure there. He sort of thinks oh, I couldn't possibly work with them. Um, He's enjoying being in France. He's living down near Perpignan on loving life there. It's nice and sunny and he watches two, both codes of rugby and he's very happy with his life there. I guess in part, um, on a hunch, I would say, it partly depends if France go through and do what they are capable of. If they went and won another slam and went and won their home World Cup, he would probably feel like, well, I've achieved what I can achieve with France. I guess if they were to go in as favourites, which is very feasible, and then something just sort of went wrong along the way and it didn't work out, and he sees a young squad with potential to keep developing, he might think differently. But I, I, I think that deep down, Sean Edwards is he's, he's a proud patriot still. He, he still feels very English, and I think one day he would probably relish that opportunity to be involved with the home country. Yeah, Luke, you've obviously inside working under him. You know, do you think he would be a would he be a kind of a must have if you were forming a New England coaching staff? It's difficult to say, isn't it? I think um look, I think every top team has a similar kind of defensive mindset, and he's obviously been one of the leaders in that front, that kind of hard press kind of defense. Um and all his teams, that's kind of been the hallmark of them. He's a great guy. Like Chris obviously had a had a chance to speak to him. Like he's um He's a hard man, but he's a real likable guy too. Like he cut me in half, like at a bad moment in a, in a Lions uh, series, but I still couldn't help but like him. Like he, he did a job me in front of the whole team, and I kind of I was annoyed him at the time, but then I met him a couple of months after, and I was like, you know what? He's actually just a great guy, um, and um, real likable. Like you'd go to the well for him every week, and I think his teams always do that. Um, and as Chris kind of alluded to there, getting everyone on the same page, it's. Rugby is a, it is a, I would disagree in that it's a, I think it is kind of a complex game, but being good at it is actually quite easy. You've got to get everyone on the same page and people will do amazing things if you can get a team working in, in, in the same direction with a lot of passion. And he's been able to do that everywhere he's been. So is he the guy? Um, I'm not sure. Like, I think there's a few good candidates out there. Like, interestingly enough, like Ireland has two very, very good. Like, I, just, I don't know if they can go back to Lancaster, but he is doing special things at Leinster. Um, seems to be off the radar there because of what happened in the last World Cup. But as a coach, if you had, you know, someone in ahead of him, he doesn't want to be. He wants to actually be coaching. His co- his work with Leinster has been astonishing. I think. Um, Farrell, you know, after a World Cup, is he a guy that is he ready for the top job in England? I mean, he's done. He he seems to be getting this Ireland team working in the same direction. Obviously, Mike Cat is working underneath them. You know, that's an interesting English combo too. So there is lots of really good English coaches out there. Baxter, I mean, will he be prized from Exeter at some point? Seems like that probably will happen, but, uh, you know, the timing has to be right. And he's, he, he seems to love it there. They love him. He's done a brilliant job and brought them up through the leagues. So the English coaching situation is very, very interesting post-World Cup. And uh, what I would say is I do think they have options. I do think, um, you know, it's still the biggest job in rugby, I think. Um, someone might argue and say that all-backs one is, but I still think it's the biggest job in rugby. 
Um, and I think it's kind of a Manchester United situation. You just need to go and get. Like, just, just get whoever you want. Just throw the money at them and say, we want you. This is the biggest job in rugby. Get over here and get us sorted out if the World Cup doesn't work out. Uh, like I, One thing I would say on, on, on the succession planning, and, and it's I don't bring up Manchester United for, for uh, no reason because I want to use it on the, the, the other foot too. Ferguson was heavily involved in who he picked as the, as the next coach. Uh, I, I just don't know if having Eddie Jones as involved in the process is actually that. Is it that beneficial? Does it leave you tied to something? Uh, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you just say, look, it didn't work out, guys. We don't think you're the next person, despite what Eddie Jones says. Goodbye. We're going to look at the coaching staff again. But that, that seems like a dangerous thing. That's what happened with Ferguson. And, and we all kind of see what, what mess is happening at, at United. So I'd just be cautious about having him too involved in the process. I saw Andy Good speaking about it too, and he's kind of astonished that he's involved in that process, given, well, I'm not sure there's much love loss there anyway, but um, <laughs> I, I, I do find the whole process interesting. What I would say is they have some interesting options and they have homegrown options, which is always nice uh, to, to have, I think, in your, in your national squad. So um, it's certainly a great and interesting topic of conversation at this point. Um, loads of good talking points. and. Um, Kind of enjoying it watching from the Irish perspective. Usually, we're the ones kind of trying to figure out that perspective, <laughs> what the what direction the team is going. Whereas I think we look actually quite settled at the moment, which is uh, which is a nice place to be. Yeah, Chris, just before we let you go, you know, Luke mentioned the, kind of the, the Irish English candidates. You know, Andy Farrell and Stuart Lancaster, like both getting rave reviews. Lancaster for a number of years, Farrell in the last maybe eighteen months or so. Like, what's the view of them over in England now? Obviously, they were part of that twenty fifteen coaching staff along with Mike Cat and Graham Rowntree, who, funnily enough, are they're all operating in Ireland now. Um, you know, is their stock high over there? You know, what, what's what's the view? I think uh, Andy Farrell, it's felt watching from the outside, it's felt as if Andy Farrell's regime with Ireland took a while to get going. And it it just felt a little bit like a fresh start. Then you go into the COVID era and everything's a bit false and a bit flat. And it, it just felt like it hadn't really started, it hadn't really taken shape. And we all watch very closely with how he does. And then, of course, you get the result in the autumn against the All Blacks and it just felt like an ignition point. And Ireland just look, they look streets ahead of England in terms of the sort of development of a team of cohesion. Obviously, they're very well served by that Leinster core they have and how familiar they are. And it's inter- it is interesting from our side watching it. It's interesting that you've got Farrell now being seen to be really pulling Ireland in the right direction, doing a good job, aided and abetted by the fact that behind the scenes, if you like, quite below the parapet, Stuart Lancaster's doing an excellent job with Leinster. Now, I like Stuart and I got on well with him. I get on well with him and I'm delighted for him that he got that gig and has really capitalised on it and done a good job because I think he's a good coach. I think he gets it. He knows how to set up rugby teams and he got battered by that England situation because there was such a massive amount of pressure going into a home World Cup. Um, and it was a bit unfair. Like, it, you know, it was it was so brutal afterwards that, that there's so much expectation. It was such a come down that that was really wounding for him. And it's been great to see, it's been great to see him go to Leinster, do a good job and have people like Johnny Sexton come out and say, what an impressive coach they think he is. And that really helps his stock over here. And it's got to the point now, he's done well enough that whenever a job comes up at leading clubs, everyone starts name-checking Stuart Lancaster again and then there's been a little bit of this noise around Eddie Jones and where do they go from here and Stuart's name pops up and that's a reflection of the fact that he sort of rebuilt his reputation away from English rugby and all credit to him for that and yeah it's it's interesting those two guys they're they're in different positions obviously but I, I think when Andy Farrell left the feeling was he came out of the 2015 mess um, with his reputation intact, all the reports, all the feedback afterwards were uh, were very positive about his particular role. And in fact, Eddie Jones came in and then had to make a decision about Andy Farrell. And he felt it just felt right to start afresh. Well, he clearly thought twice about it enough that by 2018, he was trying to get him back. So it only took him a couple of years and he, he had him in mind and went after him to try and bring him home again. So, you know, Andy Farrell's stock is very high, has never really dipped too much in England. He's just, he's on a bit of a pedestal and he's seen as a, 
you know, I mean, he's seen as this sort of supreme motivator who's now showing he can run a team as well. And, you know, he, he would very much be in the mix in any conversation about succession planning. It's just whether, from the English side, it's just whether Ireland or the Irish rugby union are already into him or already trying to do their own succession planning. I don't know what the situation is with them trying to extend contracts and so on. So it'd be interesting to see how that goes what clauses are added in and so on. But Andy Farrell would definitely be in the discussion. And I would say if there's a whole sort of fresh start with a whole new coaching staff and they are willing to invest in it, Stuart Lancaster should be in that conversation somewhere too. You could go around the world, couldn't you? Like I, I'm, I'm literally thinking of maybe Hansen, maybe Gatland. Could they, could they tempt Gatland back? A Gatland-Edwards ticket. Like that's the, that's the great thing about the England job, I think, is that they can, really, they can make those calls and, and people will... You know, they, they, it would rouse you if you were if you were in a slumber or in a smaller club or thinking you're going to retire. Say, like, mm, do you know what? Maybe we'll have a tilt at that England job. Like, you know, it's it's such a huge one. It, it's sorry to interrupt you, but I know you're probably about to sign off there. But I just it was interesting to hear Chris talking through those options because I suppose I mentioned Lancaster, thinking that I wonder would you, would you do a role reversal? Would you just have him coaching the attack? Like his attack with Leinster has been unbelievably good. That was That's what I, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you that. Know what? You just do that. Like you're great at that. And people love, he actually coaches the coaches there. So a lot of the, the Irish coaches actually, um, he sat in with some of them. I'm not going to name them, but they, they, they told me personally that they, um, he sat in and coached their, their, their meetings when he first came to Leinster. He said, look, like, would you, would, would you mind if I sat in? Uh, I'll give you feedback if you like, otherwise I'll just sit in and see what's going on. And they asked for the feedback and thought it was superb. And he was putting them in touch with other coaches in, in, in the same field. So he's brilliant. A real breath of fresh air in Leinster, I think, in a, in a young coaching ticket. So, um, yeah, he, he does know his stuff. And, yeah, it's uh, – sorry, that's probably one for the rugby nerds, that conversation, is that you can really go deep in it. But uh, I, I love it. I love talking through all those the options that are possible for England, you know. Oh, yeah, you could probably make out a list of 50 names <laughs> and have a good debate about all 50, but we'll, we'll probably leave it there for now. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah good Chris, to awesome. That's all we have time for this week on The Left Wing. We'll be back next week with another podcast. And in the meantime, you could subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen on independent.ie. So until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>